Hi, everybody, and welcome to Kremlin File. Let's introduce right away our fabulous, fabulous guest for today, H.K. Roy. Great to be here. Thank you. You were CIA operations officer for 13 years in Croatia, former Yugoslavia, Kosovo, Bosnia, and you're also the author of American Spy, Rai Reflections on My Life in the CIA. Oh my God, amazing book. I even made my mom read it. She was sitting there captivated. (laughs) Because I was uh, writing my book about my own experiences and uh, starting about the time that Trump was, you know, talking about running for office. And all I knew about him at that point was that he was a con man from New York. You know, I mean, I didn't know much much more than that, I'd never seen this TV show. But then I also started hearing about the Russia connections. And so I just started doing my own research online. Uh, and, and that's what this report or KGB file is based on, is open source reporting combined with my own sort of experience and, and analysis. At this dossier you put together, um, it's called, everybody, the KGB operational file, Agent Orange. Okay, and you can find it on HK's website. It's absolutely fabulous because mm-hmm. you wrote it as if you were a KGB SVR, right, agent talking about Trump. Okay, who is Agent Orange? All right. Yep. So I got to tell you, HK, I laughed throughout the whole thing because I could mm-hmm. I could hear this sort of Russian accent, you no, know, in my head <laughs> in the background. I want to ask you what. Comrade, what did you see in Trump, okay, in his character that made you think, hey, this guy, this guy's a perfect tool? He's definitely a perfect tool in more ways than one. So it's person, woman, man, camera, TV. Okay, that's very good. If you get it in order, you get extra points. If you, They said nobody gets it in order. It's actually not that easy, but for me, it was easy. You know, he has the attention span of a squirrel. There's no way he could act as an, and he's totally unreliable and, you know, a chronic liar. And so there's no way he could be a traditional uh, reporting asset, somebody who reports reliably on foreign intelligence. I'm sure the, the Soviets and the Czechoslovaks figured this out really quick. That's not what Trump would be of interest for. Uh, but... It, they knew that he was thinking of running for president someday, at least he talked about it. Um, he was potentially a prominent American in the future. The Soviets in those days, and probably still today, took a very patient, long-term approach to agent operations. Uh, you know, they would seed people in places and let them sit for decades sometimes. And uh, unlike the American approach, we have more of a, a short attention span, instant gratification, and so, uh, you know, we kind of want everything right now. But the, the Soviets and the Russians, they're very patient. It doesn't cost them much. And that's my take on what they saw in Trump is that who knows, you know, maybe someday it'll, it'll pay off. And it paid off probably more than they ever could have oh, imagined. I don't think, yeah. I don't think they imagined that uh, jackpot. Yep. Yep. And, and it's in ways that, you know, like 9-11, they probably, the Al-Qaeda probably never expected the buildings to actually collapse, but they did. So you start these operations sometimes with the hope that things go well, and sometimes they go better than you can possibly imagine. And in the case of Trump, you know, at the time I was thinking, wow, if they actually have Trump under, uh, again, not as a traditional paid asset, but more of an agent of influence, somebody who is able to influence, say, American 
policy or, uh, or public perception to the benefit of the intelligence service, that could be very valuable, even though he's totally unreliable as a source of information. And uh, so to have somebody like that as president of the United States, my conclusion at the time was this must be the greatest intelligence operation of all time. But it's gone beyond that now. I mean, look, you know, the story of the century is America, democracy is on the verge of, of falling apart. And thanks in large part to Trump, Trump, Trumpism, his supporters, and although the, the Russians are not, uh, can't take full credit for that, they certainly know how to fan the flames, yeah. uh, stoke the divisions. Trump was the perfect tool for that job. You know, he, he immediately reminded me of, uh, of Milosevic and, and what happened in the former Yugoslavia. You know, Milosevic would always claim that, uh, uh, you know, the Kosovo Albanians are raping Serb women. And of course, that wasn't true. And the first thing Trump says when he announces he's running for president is Mexicans are raping American citizens. So they, they start off on the same foot. They know how to appeal to the lowest common denominator, um, you know, rile people up. It's tribalism, you know, in its worst form. And uh, and I feared and uh, that that was what Trump was up to here in the U.S. And it works, you know, it's, it's a cheap it's a cheap ploy and it's dangerous and, and it works. And that's yeah. exactly what he has done successfully. Yes. Let me ask you, HK, though, but the Americans, right, you were working, hmm? Uh, in the former Yugoslavia, and, and you worked in intelligence there, what would you be looking for? First of all, you, you always look for somebody who has access to information that, that in our case, the U.S. government wants. We have certain requirements, you know, set out by the policymakers, by the White House, by the Pentagon, the State Department. They said, this is the information that we want to know. In Yugoslavia, we want to know, you know, what, what's going to happen? Is the country going to fall apart? the military order of battle, this type of thing. And so uh, CIA officers then go out and try and, re and, and again, and the U.S. government obviously has access to all the open source information that everybody else has access to. So what we focus on is that 1% of the information that's not uh, publicly available. You know, what is Putin thinking? Is he going to invade Ukraine or yeah. not? You know, only Putin knows this. And so that's the type of information you want to get at. So you want to recruit somebody who, who knows this? Some, so Putin's right-hand man is who you want to recruit in, in Russia, for example. Somebody who can tell you this type of thing. Uh, and so, and then so you identify the, the people who have access to the information that you need. Then you need to find somebody who is actually uh, likely to, to end up working for you as a spy. Uh, somebody who has vulnerabilities or in the case of, you know, Trump is just an obvious, easy mark because... Yeah. Um, He's he's so vain. He, he, yeah. he just you know you, you just as long as you tell him what Trump he wants tower. to hear. Yeah, you're his, they dangled the Trump Tower in front of him since the eighties. Like, there I you think. go. Yeah, and so he's got that going. That's just he's so easy to manipulate. Obviously, he's corrupt, and you know, Ogilvy. You probably want to get into that the whole money laundering business. Uh, uh, so they had financial leverage over him as well. Uh, that he probably wouldn't want made public. In his case, you know, there's also possibly when he went to Moscow and, and Leningrad, uh, you know, they undoubtedly had his hotel rooms completely monitored. And, uh, you know, more recently, the whole idea of the PP tape and this kind of thing. 
Probably true. And with Trump, you know, that's like the least of his. I know. He, that's the he, least of the worries. Exactly. Yeah. He, he wouldn't, I don't think he'd even care. You know, yeah, he would, uh, he would capitalize off it. Like, right. wants Probably. to buy my. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Right. So, so the point is, Trump is the kind of guy who's really easy, again, not to recruit as a traditional reporting asset who's going to meet you in a hotel room once a month and spill secrets. But he's a guy who could become a, an agent of influence and do what you, Putin or the Russian government, want him to do. And if you look at what Trump did when he was president, almost every single policy decision yeah, he made favored yeah. Russia. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. was going to ask was, you about and, that, HK. Like, you know, you're everybody should really go and read, okay, the dossier, because I mean, kidding aside, yeah. it's fantastic. It's a great way to you from there you can go off and then maybe read things like much more in depth but it gives you a great overview to talk you know how overview. much damage right did, yep. did trump do how much of those things that let's say russia wanted done okay the kremlin wanted done how right. much do you see there i mean again you just go through the list russia's big concern is nato and Trump did everything he could to weaken and divide in NATO. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he pulled us out of all these international agreements. Uh, he, he stoked uh, racial and ethnic uh, unrest in the U.S. Um, you just kind of go down the list and everything he did was to Putin's and Russia's benefit. Um, and he's not smart enough to do that on his own, you know. Nope. And, and then and so you say, well, where did he get his his guidance, you know, uh, he can't have, he's the president of the United States, he can't have a traditional agent meeting with his handler, who was Putin, the old KGB hand. They had meetings in plain sight, you know, the Helsinki summit. That's, they, they had these meetings with Putin and Trump and nobody else from the American side. This is where he had his occasional agent meeting. This is how I, this is how I view it. It was yep. in plain sight. They did everything in plain sight. I mean, right. everything, their communications, I watched because you know i keep an eye on on the russian media and statements russia comes out and says something then hours later trump comes out and repeats it russia right. has a phone call with trump for probably the a good four and a half years that i got everything from russia like every phone right. call the readouts from Russia, we never got American readouts. We were never even told he had a call with Putin. Right. So it was basically all the information on this relationship was being reported out of Russia. And mm -hmm. then occasionally the State Department would, you know, or the White House would post the reading like hours later in some cases, not all the time. Right. And the readings here were always more vague, whereas they had it way more detailed and Russian press. So, I mean, it clearly you saw who the, yeah, you know, who had the control. But going back to Agent of Influence, so Khrushchev um, headed KGB um, at the time in the 80s. And in 84, because before uh, KGB would recruit very specifically, they wanted someone who had technology information. They wanted someone, you know, in specific roles in universities and in, in intelligence agencies and political offices, whatnot. But in 84, after the spy wars between U.S. and Soviet Union, there were so many losses on both sides that he was like, you know, crap, I'm losing spies and I'm not getting enough, uh, you know, back. 
Right. So he expanded, uh, he wrote a memo. And in the memo, he expanded the recruitment options. So now it mm-hmm. went from specific targets, as HK was saying, where you actually do like meet, you know, leave something at a rock and then turn the rock and then walk away and so on. To actually now they want a businessman, real estate people, anyone of influence, just, you know, to have. And that's it. You know, like they didn't have any, they're like, recruit him, you know, we'll see what we could do with him. So now it was more broad and it was more just try to recruit them and then we'll see how they work into our plans and if we could do anything. So Trump, sure enough, comes perfectly up because he is a rising businessman, real estate developer, splashed all over um, New York papers. For his, you know, wild nights in Studio 50. Yeah, what is it? Everywhere. Studio 54? 54. Yeah. Okay. Hey. 54. 54. That, was, that was Trump's 54. Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. So they expanded the agent of, inf- I mean, recruitment for looking for agents of influence. And it wasn't for an immediate plot. You know, they kept them around uh, with Trump. As HK mentioned, it was money laundering. So it's not like they recruited him in 1988 in the 1980s and then said, you know what, we're going to uh, sit out. They did, you know, keep him in in their sphere, but it wasn't like in 1980s. They're like, OK, we are going to wait for 40 years until he becomes president. I mean, in the process, there were so many like financial dealings and, you know, and they just kept having a relationship. And right. then it come here comes 2016, which was planned much earlier, and um, and then you see they're like, okay, our guy is you know going in. We're gonna make sure to put him in, and that's it. So the relationship was a very long time. It was like different, you know, operation with an operation with an operation, particularly to move money out because at the time after the collapse there were so many trillions of dollars of flight capital that had to leave the Soviet former Soviet Union to get through. So and when you think about it, his first trip to the Soviet Union was in the 80s at the invitation of the Soviet government. That that was highly unusual at the time. They clearly were focused on him as we would be. A big shot in any country is worth having on your side just because you, you don't know where it's going to lead. He can introduce you to other people, uh, even if he's not an, an actual agent himself. But the KGB was involved in bringing him to the Soviet Union in the 80s. I mean, this is pretty mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is from open source information. And uh, they talked to him about how other countries were laughing at America. Uh, you know, you're being taken advantage of. He comes back from his first trip to the Soviet Union and places all these ads in the New York Times and elsewhere echoing exactly what the Soviets had told him during his first trip. Godly knows what compromat they, they collected on him while he was there as well. Yeah. I think he went to Moscow and Leningrad both at the time. So this this was they focused on him as as early as the 80s, really. Mm-hmm. You know. And then to add to the Moscow thing, the recruitment started. Well, for the Moscow trip started in New York at the UN Soviet mission by uh, this woman, Natalia Dubanina, who mm-hmm. was a Soviet spy uh, mm-hmm. working in the library in UN. And her father, who came and became the Soviet ambassador to UN, eventually he got transferred 
uh, to, and became the Soviet ambassador to D.C. So, I mean, and they're the ones who pulled him in. He had a luncheon. We had another uh, Soviet politician in U.N. in New York, uh, Cherkin, who recently died. They invited him, um, you know, to go to Trump Tower. I mean, to go to Moscow. And that's it. And off we, he went and they dangled Trump Towers. And I mean, logically Please. speaking, who... Who in their right mind would think in a communist country where people are standing <laughs> on bread lines, they are going to allow a gaudy gold building that like shows, you know, is everything that they're bashing capitalism about. Right, right, next was to the Kremlin. right there. I was just going to yeah. say it was right across from the Kremlin on, on top yeah. of it. Right, right. How could he even believe that? I guess that that's that. Is that part of the narcissism? He doesn't care. It's his care. personality, yeah. He and the first supposedly the first thing that this Soviet ambassador told Trump when he met him in New York the very first time was when, when I came to New York, uh, Trump Tower was the first biggest, most beautiful building I saw when I came to New York. And boom, he had Trump. Oh, that's right. it. From that I moment can't on, believe that. That's incredible. And to add me. to and to add to HK, so with that story, we only knew of one. A meeting between Trump and this um, Soviet ambassador. And on election night, nine hours after Hillary Clinton conceded, Natalia Dubonina, his daughter and the one who was working in the Soviet mission, uh, releases. She's been silent. 30 plus years silent. No one's heard of her. She's not in Russia. You Google her. One thing comes up, which is a like recent thing in 2013 when her father died and she attended the funeral in the local town. That's it. Nothing else. She doesn't exist. So um, she comes out to a Russian outlet that is a front, you know, that deals with FSB, Russia's intelligence agency, nine hours after our election and gives this story that um, she picked her dad up at the airport. They're driving. The father saw this beautiful tower. They decided to park the car, run upstairs, find the owner, because, you know, it's like a hundred floor. Well, no, what is it, 90 floors? And what, like, did they knock on every single door to, you know, <laughs> hi, who owns this building? <laughs> so, um, and then said, and they go talk to Trump, have lunch. And then, um, uh, in, according to her account, that um, her father complimented Trump so much that he made him melt. Her father didn't speak a word of English. If you look at the archives, <laughs> if you look at the archives in, in of the thing, even then, like people were questioning why are they sending a Soviet ambassador who doesn't speak one word of English? So right. I mean. Uh-huh. And this was right after election, and it was like, "Hi, Trump. Hi, yep, she, <laughs> we remember she you." Take, she wanted to take credit for that recruitment and and remind Trump who he was, uh, you know, working yeah, for. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Crazy. Yeah, all those signs yeah. and signals, right? That uh, that mm-hmm. they send out. Mm-hmm. Um, can we move over to the former Yugoslavia, Bosnia, mm-hmm. Kosovo, right? Um, you, I mean, your time there, you were, no, can you tell us a little bit about, okay, your, your experiences there? I know that you were collecting intelligence, right? Documenting the genocide right. that was ongoing. That must have been absolutely harrowing. Right. Now, I first 
was assigned to Belgrade in 89, just before the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, and, and so my time there was from late 89, some living there full time for a couple of years, and then going back and forth, TDY, temporary duty assignments, uh, all the way through the Kosovo War. By the time the Kosovo War happened, I was out of the government, but I would still help out as needed, as I have done in, in Iraq since 2003. So my initial experience in Yugoslavia, was Yugoslavia at the time, was uh, from our perspective, it was a denied area, which means it's like working inside Moscow or East Berlin. Now, Yugoslavia was nowhere near as harsh or um, as restrictive as it was in Moscow, but we still used the same trade craft. You know, you had to go through uh, advanced specialized surveillance detection training, uh, as did your spouse, whether they wanted to or not. Uh-huh. And yeah, they got two for one back in back in those <laughs> days. And yeah, and then my whole focus of my of my first couple of years there was to securely handle a very high level, very sensitive Yugoslav agent who we ran because he provided amazing intelligence and counterintelligence as well. And so, uh, you know, before that tour, I was in Latin America, and that was a more open, traditional tour where I'm out of the streets recruiting people, reporting information, rarely, if ever, under surveillance. But uh, then you go to the, to the former to the Soviet bloc or to Yugoslavia or a place like Cuba, you're in a denied area. And so your whole, you spend your entire two years, let's say, there trying to, uh, to live a lifestyle that suggests that you're just an ordinary diplomat visa officer, whatever, uh, so that you don't come to the attention of the local security service. And again, the, the Yugoslav Security Service, the SDB at the time, uh, they would surveil me and others, but they didn't have the resources that the KGB had. So, uh, you know, you'd have one or two cars on you and that was it. If I were in Moscow, they could have had 20 cars and you, it's much harder That's to right. know what's <laughs> going on. And so in, in that sense, it was a little bit... A little bit easier in uh, in Yugoslavia to detect surveillance and know whether or not you had it. So, for example, before I would go to an agent meeting, let's say at ten o'clock at night in a cemetery, uh, I would spend several hours beforehand doing uh, an SDR surveillance detection route, which is pre-planned for for months. Uh, starting off in a vehicle, uh, then you go to get on foot, and, and it's a, it's a long process. It's kind of explained in my in my book. You, the point of that is you want to make sure that you don't drag the local uh, security service, the KGB, the SDB, to your meeting, agent meeting, because if they catch you having this meeting, they arrest him. They beat me up, throw me out of the country, but they, he's in prison for the rest of his life or executed. And so it's essential that you know whether or not you have surveillance before you go to your agent meeting. Now, once you're in the meeting, uh, and in Yugoslavia, we had what were called brands, brief encounters where I could meet him on the street for, let's say, five minutes uh, uh, briefly. He might bring his wife so that if, you know, the locals see people meeting on the street, if there's, if there's a woman in the, in the mix, it all of a sudden becomes less threatening for some, for some wow. reason. And so, and then, the, and then the goal at that point is I'm, I want to collect intelligence. Uh, in my case, my agent would hand me a, a sports bag full of a stack of top secret uh, Yugoslav documents, uh, and then I would also debrief him quickly, like in five minutes in Serbian, on uh, the breaking news of the day. What highlights do you have for me today that you didn't maybe have covered in the documents? He would give me that. And then I would have to make it back to my house that night without 
hopefully not being under surveillance and hopefully not getting in a car wreck where if I'm unconscious and the police come, they're going to find this bag full of documents, which will lead them right back to him. Uh, and then the next morning I would put them in a grocery box and bring them into the station. And it was like Christmas morning. And we would pull out this stack of top secret uh, documents. And in, in those days we had, you know, a couple of us stuffed into a little windowless office with music blaring, no computers because of the chance that you could give off emanations or whatever. So we would literally uh, pencil and paper translate the most important documents first. Uh, and this would take weeks to get through them, but, uh, and then hand them to our communicator who did have a little secure uh, shell that he could work in and, and transmit them securely via, via satellite back to headquarters or whoever else needed to see the recording. So that was sort of the focus of my first two years there. And, and as I mentioned in the book, um, the CIA uh, did a phenomenal job of, of providing intelligence on what was happening in Yugoslavia, where they were headed, the fact that they were going to fall apart. Uh, that was whether we liked it or not. This is what was happening. Uh, but the policymakers, and this is one of the other themes of my book, policymakers, Democrat, Republican alike, uh, often ignore intelligence and make stupid policy decisions. And that's what happened in Yugoslavia. Uh, the, the first president, George Bush Sr., and James Baker, who came up to Belgrade, the U.S. policy was we only recognize a single unified Yugoslavia. We will not recognize the independent republics. That gave the green light. And we, we had already told them that's idiotic, because if you do that, you're going to give the green light to the Serbs, the Yugoslavs, to, uh, to start things off in Slovenia, which they did, and then Croatia, which will be horrible, and Bosnia, which will be even worse. And But that's exactly what the U.S. government did. Our, our policy kicked, helped kick things off in, in Yugoslavia. Now, a couple of years later, maybe not even that, our policy, we then realized, gee, we should have listened to the intelligence. So our policy reversed. Now we only recognize the independent republics, Croatia, Bosnia, whatever, and you Serbs are now the bad guys, you know. And so, although we still had an arms embargo, which meant that only the Serbs had weapons, the Bosnians and Croats, you know, did not, it made it much harder on them. Uh, and so, so again, that's just an example of how if, if policymakers ignore intelligence, and we told them, I mean, I told them even personally in 91, based on the lots of intelligence that I collected, that um, if we don't accept the reality and help them to break apart peacefully, it's going to be horrific in Croatia. And then again, at the time, nobody had ever heard of Bosnia except because of the Olympics were there. And we said Bosnia is going to be even worse than, uh, than Croatia if you go down this path. And they went down that path anyway. Wow. 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 Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And then you had your own uh, skirmishes there. Right. So then the war started. So at the end of my two year tour in Belgrade, um, the, the, we, there was a brief Slovene war, which didn't last long because um, there aren't a lot of Serbs in Slovenia. And so the Yugoslav, the JNA, the Yugoslav People's Army didn't put up much of a fight. The Slovenes were brutal against the, the JNA. And so it only lasted a week or two weeks or whatever. But then things started in Croatia. And uh, before I left, I was already reporting. There were militias training right behind my house in, in uh, Belgrade. And we could see what was, and there's stories about that in the book as well. Some of them were kind of funny. Um, and so things were heating up in Croatia. So at the end of my tour, my family 
came back to the States, but I stayed and went up to, we, we evacuated our, our consulate in Zagreb. It wasn't an embassy at the time, it was a consulate, just like they're doing in Kiev uh, now. And then I went up there with a couple of others to cover the new war in the heart of Europe. And it was a pretty wild experience because I go from Cold War, you know, spy versus spy type stuff uh, to covering a war in Europe. And um, and then I, I then my tour was really over. I came back to the States. A year later, I went back to Croatia, war still raging, and to establish uh, the first official service-to-service relationship between the U.S., between the CIA and the Croatian Security Service. Uh, because now Yugoslavia had fallen apart. We have all these new countries. They have intelligence security services. We want to be there to help them, but also to train them, sort of teach them how to do things in, in a democracy. You know, this is, yeah. you're used to the old KGB yeah. way of doing things. Sure. Here's how you should sure. be doing things. Sure. Uh, but also they were able to provide uh, intelligence. Following that, you know, the Bosnian War started uh, and I was sent back in summer of well, I tried to go there in, in 94, but it was just too dangerous. So we never did make it to Sarajevo. We made it as far as Naples because uh, that's where NATO NATO was based for the Bosnia operations. But in the summer of 95, uh, by then, uh, I heard that Hillary, who was at the time first lady, you know, she wasn't secretary of state. She decided we need to have a, a CIA station in Sarajevo because it was starting to look like NATO may go in and get engaged in Bosnia in the fall. And so I was the guy chosen to go to Sarajevo to establish another official service-to-service relationship with the Bosnian intelligence service. Now, Sarajevo at the time was completely cut off, surrounded, being bombed, sniped by by the Serbs. It was, you know, it was a brutal war zone. You may recall people were literally starving because they were cut off from the outside world. I remember So, So I had to figure out how to get in there so I could then link up with this Bosnian security service. The stories in the book is the first chapter. I, I did make contact, established this relationship. They were happy to help and they could provide amazing intelligence to us. Uh, from their point of view, they knew what was going on in Bosnia. I was there when Srebrenica happened and provided sort of a blow by blow account, thanks in large part to the Bosnian security service and uh, so I reported the, the Serbs just killed uh, 8,000 men and boys over the last couple of days. Uh, and the U.S. government didn't believe it at first. But at any rate, uh, so the, the Bosnians knew that we could do something about this. That's why they were happy to provide this intelligence to us. They wanted NATO to come in, save the day, which they did eventually. But at the same time, I found out uh, almost the hard way the Bosnian Security Service and the, and the Interior Ministry were under the control of the Iranian Intelligence Service. Uh, for, for three years, we had basically ignored Bosnia and did nothing to help. They were desperate, being slaughtered. And so the Iranians said, hey, we'll come in and help. Uh, and they did. And so, uh, uh, the, so when I showed up, I was the only American guy of my, of my ilk uh, there, and I was in true name. And I found, so the Bosnian, uh, the Iranians said, hey, the head of the Iranian intelligence service said to his buddy, the head of the Bosnian security service, who was my contact, I want to meet H.K., I just want to see him in the flesh. And so 
One day I show up at the Bosnian Interior Ministry building and they send me into a, a little room downstairs. I normally met him upstairs. And I go in and my Bosnian counterpart is there. And they're all wearing camouflage fatigues and smoking because it's, it's a war zone. And there's this other guy, Middle Eastern looking guy, standing there with him who I'd never met, also in camouflage fatigues. And I said, you know, what's up? And he says, oh, sorry, HK, I'll meet you upstairs in 10 minutes. I said, okay. And that was it. He didn't introduce me or anything. Uh, I found out either that night or the next night through means that I can't really get into, but other than to say they're 100% reliable, that the guy that I was showcased to was the head of the Iranian intelligence service. Uh, and he had a plan to uh, pick me up on the street, kidnap me, torture me, interrogate me, be done with me the way they had done with uh, with uh, William Buckley. He was our chief of station in Beirut 10 years before, picked up by Hezbollah, but controlled by Iran. And the same thing happened to him. And with, with the Iranians, if they get you, you will never be traded. You'll never be released. Nope. You will be killed. It's, just, that's, it's over once the Iranians get you. But I actually was able to read the a translation of his ops cable back to Tehran with the fact that he met me and here's what we plan to do with him with the help of the Bosnian security service who was supposedly our, our friend. So uh, at that point I had to figure out what to do and, and how to get out. And that sort of uh, is, is chapter one. Oh man. So, and you're so, here. <laughs> and yeah, you're here. I kept reminding myself while I was reading the book, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, is he going to make it? And I'm like, wait, hello, I know him. <laughs> How did you escape? How did you get away? It, well, it's, it's all in the book. They were, at first, they, and I, once, once I found out they were after me, the threat kind of went from being, you know, I'm in this crazy war zone where I'm hoping a sniper doesn't get me or a mortar doesn't, because mortars are going off all the time. Now I know that, that the Iranians are there and they're focused on getting me specifically. That became the, the immediate concern. Um, they talked about sending in a helicopter to pick me up. But at that time, there were no helicopters flying around Bosnia. This was before U.S. troops were ever there. Um, and so I said, don't do that because, number one, it's going to take you a week. And I probably won't last that long. And number two, all three sides are going to be shooting at you if you come in here because they're not going to know who you are. And so, so that idea was a bad one. I ended up, there were some um, some uh, people, special operators from the military who were on the ground there, along with the Department of State security official. Uh, and uh, they had basically, we decided the best way out would be the same way I came in, which was over this Mount Igman road. You go in the middle of the night, you go as fast as you can with lights out. You hope the Serbs don't shoot you with an anti-aircraft gun, which they would actually aim at vehicles. And we hope in this case that the Iranians and the Bosnian counterparts don't pick me up on the way up. And that's how we, that's how we got out in the middle of the night and it, and it worked. Wow. Wow. Thanks you know, to some think, courageous I mean, American You know colleagues. what it is, is that we think, you know, we're, this is like getting out and it's an escape, Right. And a lot of times people don't realize that this is the way a lot of people, right, in war zones need to get out. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's incredible right. to think that these things are true, you know, in, in our Yeah, lives. that's the other thing. Yeah. One of the other points I make in my book is I'm I'm going to these, you know, to the front lines and most was being attacked. One day I was there with my Croatian government colleagues and to them it's like all just in a day's work, you know. 
a mortar would land and they said that was 500 meters away of somebody else's problem. It's not our problem. And so we're one minute we're in this crazy war zone in Mostar, you know, all kinds of weird scenes, you know, city parks had been turned into cemeteries. There was a couple, she was in her wedding gown. He was in his tux walking through the rubble of a bombed out Catholic church. Like they're going to have a wedding or something. And then, uh, and then again, two hours later, we're, we're in, in some peaceful tourist site in Bosnia that they wanted to show me. And, you know, I'm, I was an American and, and I was there and doing my job, but I always knew I could leave, you know, go back home. These people live, this live war there. every day yeah. and it just becomes a way of life. And it is, it's, I always wow. was grateful that I, you know, could always get out. Yeah, that's yeah. same like now. I mean, we have so many yeah. hot spots around the world right now. You yeah. know, where well, this area too is starting to warm up. Yeah, no, no. again, yeah. again, right? HK. Oh, right, right. This, this and I don't follow like, it that closely anymore. But yeah. but yeah, and with the help of of Russia, but yeah, we could see a repeat in Bosnia because the Serbs are, you know, they're not happy with the way things are. They're they with Russian support are stirring up trouble in Bosnia. Kosovo, you know, the Russians tried the coup in Montenegro, which didn't didn't pan out. Oh, by they, the way, sorry, got... sorry to cut you off, but yeah. they tried to kill the prime minister in uh, Montenegro and Trump happened to be at the U.N. meeting, specifically shoved the Montenegro prime minister. Go ahead. Sorry. I remember. OK, that. oh, just an right. aside there. Yeah. <laughs> No, and, and so the Russian hand is very much active in former Yugoslavia, even in Croatia, of all places. And so uh, we can probably expect more trouble in, in the Balkans in the future. Obviously, this week, everybody's focused on, on Ukraine and you know we'll see what happens there. But, uh, do, you Russia, think US, do you think U.S. and Europe are prepared um, to handle a multi-front war? Like to with Ukraine, with Balkans, and China's acting up with Taiwan. Like, would they be able to? You know, I mean, in theory, yes, because you know our government is huge and capable, and the Pentagon is the greatest. You know, maybe the most wasteful, but also the greatest military on the planet. We have experts who deal with all these different regions. So, in theory, yes. Although, you know, in reality, it'd be nice if all these things didn't happen yes. at once, because uh, then you really do get spread so thin. But. Um, Ukraine is interesting just because we seem to be, the U.S. government seems to be more convinced that uh, Russia is going to invade than the Ukraine government believes. You know? So that's going to be interesting to see what plays out there. Yeah. Well, on their end, I think as far as the Ukrainian government, I mean, I have my thoughts about um, the president, but I um, think um, that it has also to do with, I mean, he is the president of a country. He wants a. He doesn't want investments to fly out. B. He doesn't want a bank uh, a run on the banks because, if, like, mm-hmm. if he comes down and says we are, you know, about to get invaded, everyone's going to run for the banks. I mean, and uh, you sure. know, so I think he's also trying in, you know, a way to kind of keep the calm. But behind the scenes, they are taking it serious. They're doing training yeah. drills. You know, the civilian force. Um, they're checking all bomb shelters across the country in every uh, city. Uh, I mean, in Kiev, I think they said that it was going to be the train station that was going to be the bomb shelter. So they're kind of, uh, you know, working from behind the scenes on the front. He's, you know, trying to be, I guess, more cautious as far as not to scare off investors, to collapse the right. market. Because what Russia does, I mean, besides the conventional war, 
And I'm sure, you know, you know more about this, but besides the conventional war, they also um, run an incredibly successful psychological operation. So, I mean, you know, they want Zelensky to come out and panic the country and see the market start crashing and see investors say, oh, let's roll it out and get out and see people, right. you know, chaos and roads jammed and, and people trying to get out of the country, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, they're psychological war, and that's probably the oldest tool they've had yeah. going back to World War it, II. It's the Russian MO, isn't it? Just all they do is subvert and stir up trouble wherever they wherever go. They go. Um, what is keeping you up, let's say, late at night? What worries you? Where do you see America heading? I know you touched on it a little bit before. You know, and then what should we be doing to stop all of this, right? Yeah, honestly, my what keeps me up at night is is the fear that American democracy is on its last legs, and um, you know, Trumpism and with help from the Russians got the ball rolling, and now you see, and I, as you'll see in my book, I'm I'm very I've always been very apolitical, independent. I rarely voted in the past. I have problems with both Democrat and Republican. Presidents in the past who I criticized equally. My problem with Trump isn't that he's a Republican; it's that he's Trump, and he's, he, he's, he's not even a Republican. He, he, I don't know what he's not even a Republican. <laughs> and so, so he, he's transformed our country, and you now have the Republican Trump Republican Party. You know, January sixth was a was a dress rehearsal, and now they are systematically figuring out ways to take over the election machinery in our country, like in Arizona. Republican legislature wants to be able to decide the outcome of future elections. They're intimidating Republican and Democrat alike, you know, good, honest American citizens who volunteer to, to be election officials. They're threatening them with death, driving them out of their jobs with lawsuits and everything else uh, to take over the election machinery in this country. We no longer have a true two-party system. Uh, the Republican Party isn't about policy anymore, it's just about power and doing anything open and openly. They're not hiding what they're up to. And um, and so what happens you know, in 2022 and then 2024, uh, whether it's Trump or another Republican who runs for president, he has said, the only way I can lose is if there's fraud. And the next time he'll make sure that his people throw, you know, that they that they figure out how to how to take over. And so that's what worries me the most. And the, and the people who follow him and support him they don't. They don't seem to understand what they're doing to our country, and uh, it's just kind of mind-boggling to me that we're headed down this path. Yeah, yeah. Especially since you've lived right and you've operated in areas where there is no freedom. So this right. is, you know, this, these are areas where you're controlled, you're surveilled. You don't have a free life, right? I mean, people are trying to escape from these areas. Right. And, and, you know, and I saw, again, what happened in Yugoslavia. That's why when I saw Trump coming down the escalator and he started going on these on his path of, of tribalism and trying to divide Americans and blame others. And this was what happened in Yugoslavia and why it fell apart and went into civil war. It's kind of what happens in Iraq, the tribalism. And although in Iraq, they're actually doing a better job of keeping things together now, having been through some horrific years. But this is the path that they're leading us down. And but again, so many Americans are so uneducated, ignorant, and never traveled to another country and don't know history. Look, they're, they're in Tennessee. They're voting out 
the what mouse, you know, the, yeah, the book. The mouse you know, thing. They yeah, just, I saw that. I saw they that. don't want kids to On learn the Holocaust. History. Right. I mean you it's, know. Just, it's it's history. It's just stuff we need to we all need to know. And they're banning they're banning books. I mean, this is Orwellian and uh and it, it these are it's just beyond belief that this is happening in this country. I, and I always expected to go to other countries and report on this kind of thing there and the corruption and, you know, the authoritarianism and all that. I just really didn't expect to see it here. And it's happening here. And what do we do? What's your suggestion? That's uh, that's a good question. Because, I mean, you know, in countries I'm sure you've operated in, it's always like the 30 percent who seize power. Right. And then the right. 70% are just stuck and end up falling into an authoritarian state. Exactly. So what look do we do? Nazi, look at Nazi Germany. Yeah. I, I don't I don't really have an answer. I know some of my former colleagues and I have discussed, you know, options. You know, in our younger day, we would have, if it comes to that, we would join or lead the resistance, you know, here. But, you know, who wants to do that now? Or you try and lay low under the radar and hope for the best. Or you leave the country, you know, and um, but again, hopefully we won't ever get to that point. This is, this is sort of a worst case scenario thinking. I mean, you know, you you stay involved, you you know, spread the good word, you try and get educate people, and hope that the institutions hold the next time the way they did the last time. But that's what it kind of comes down to: is will our institutions hold or not? And the, and the Republicans are making doing everything they can to make sure that the institutions do not hold, that they control the outcome of future elections. That's what's so scary. Wow. Wow. Okay, we're going to finish off on a really happy note. you got to tell <laughs> me, behind you, you have an absolutely beautiful painting. Where is that? Ah, uh, Damascus, Syria. I used to go to Syria back before the war. We would have meetings there because it was safer than meeting in Iraq. Uh, and now it's safer to be in Iraq than in Syria. But... Uh, so I bought that from a Olga. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on the list. Put it on yeah. the list. Uh, speaking of Syria, um, this, this, I'm telling you, this is what I mean when I say that Russia really, like, we need to invest in sending them a map because <laughs> now they um, came out with now? a statement. No, they came out with a statement demanding, we demand immediately. For all foreign forces to get out of Syria. There you go. Like, well, which border is this? What? Like, now they're mapping circle yeah. Syria? I mean, not coming from Assad, coming from Russia. Yeah. Well, look at what Russia did in Syria. The slaughter, intentional slaughter of civilians, hospitals. Children, and, women. Is, uh, and, and again, with Trump's collaboration, he, he moved our, well, that was more on behalf of uh, Turkey, but, you know, betraying our Kurdish allies. And, uh, every every move Trump did was for one of his author, authoritarian pals, you know, whether Erdogan or, or Putin. And Putin wanted us out too in, Sy- in right. Syria. They celebrated exactly. when Trump announced it. And in yeah, Germany. I mean, look at this. Now how important it is that we get forces back into Europe. Trump demanded and signed, uh, well, issued the orders for us to get American troops out of, out of Germany. Yeah. Just what Putin wanted. That's oh, right. Was, celebrated was, that's that was right. On, the, on the checklist. Yeah, that's yeah, right. No, every, on the checklist. every foreign policy was um, yep. for them. That's right. Yep. That's right. So I just want to remind everybody. Wait, so where the was title? the happy note? Oh. 
<laughs> Syria. No. Oh, that, that, that happy was, note. No, it, was, it was because the painting behind is so beautiful. Oh, the okay, painting. That that's note. A- Let's uh, finish off. Okay, reminding everybody of the title. Okay, of HK's book, American Spy: Rye Reflections on My Life in the CIA. HK, what is your website so people can go and read Agent Orange? Yeah, if you want to read the Agent Orange uh, KGB file on Trump, it's hkroy.com. And I think there's a tab called Extras, so there's the KGB file. There's also a a playlist because throughout the book, uh, there are musical references. And so uh, there's a playlist where you can sort of hear the songs that were mentioned in the book as well. And and additional photos that were not included. Oh, But it's hkroy.com. Great, 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 great. Well, you, we're going to welcome you back on at another time as well, I'm sure. Great. Oh, definitely. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Thank Arrivederci. You. Bye. Arrivederci. Thank Ciao. you so much Ciao. for coming on. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Amato. With executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant Dissini, Ben Brett, and Jordy Mycellus of Midas Media. With associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarna. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellis. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.